Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. You know, they say we see everything once in this game. Pretty sure we've never seen this. Today's episode of Daily Horror Habit rounds out my exploration of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead's filmography so far, with a look at their latest trippy feature, Synchronic, which is currently streaming on Hulu and is coming to Netflix on April 16th. Directed by Benson and Moorhead and written by Benson, Synchronic follows New Orleans paramedic Steve, played by Anthony Mackie, and Dennis, played by Jamie Dornan, whose lives are upended by bizarre events triggered by a new designer drug that has otherworldly ramifications for its users. And joining me for another mind-melting chat about the Benson and Moorhead universe is returning friend of the show, Matt Jordan. Matt, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, good to be back. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to the bottom of Synchronic with you today because I think in visiting their earlier films, Justin uh, Benson and Aaron Moorhead's films, we've seen sort of the creative, the sort of like creative parameters that they've set up with their films, right? We saw their first film, which was Resolution, which was really fantastic and kind of just showing their raw storytelling ability with this kind of weird sci-fi horror blending that really sort of showed that they were able to do a lot with very little. And then we got to see them do Spring, which was this film that was very original, but it was removed, right? So you get to see them explore that creativity with a little bit more of a budget, more experience. And then we got to see The Endless and how they kind of tie that in to resolution, right? And we get to see them telling a story that they had previously written before spring and yet they got to use all of their experience and more resources obviously this time to kind of connect that to resolution and now we get to talk about synchronic which is arguably their biggest budget benson and moorhead are both behind the camera this time and they're replacing themselves in the stars of the film with these big name actors and so i think we had talked a little bit last time and we were a little kind of wary and just seeing 
whether their sort of specific brand of creativity is able to sort of transcend to the next level of whether it be resources of talent involved and seeing kind of if their creativity is either hindered or if maybe they have to kind of pull back a little bit on what they're able to produce with all these new sort of strings that are probably attached, whether it be again, like the star power that they have now or the money that's attached to that. So I'm curious kind of just to get to the bottom of this with you and see uh, what your initial thought was on Synchronic. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well because you see um, these two filmmakers who have a certain kind of you know pool that they're swimming in in terms of, in terms of filmmaking and budget. And I think they pretty much mastered that. Like, you know, they're, they're really good at that. And then now they're transitioning into something new. And I'm not sure that they're quite getting it. You know, this is, uh, I hope this is kind of a transitional movie for them because, you know, like you said, they're stepping out into a, a larger budget. Uh, I think they've actually, you know, upped their game technically, like in terms of cinematography and music and everything. I think they're doing a, a great job of this movie. But something about it just doesn't have the same uh, spark as their previous movies. And I, and I don't know if it's because, like you said, maybe Resolution and The Endless, uh, those were both kind of being drawn from ideas that they seem to have been working on for quite a while. You know, something that was probably deeply personal to them. Uh, Spring was something fresh, but it seemed like they had a really good handle on it. You know, it seemed kind of personally important. And something about this movie, it, it almost feels like, what it reminds me of a little bit is uh, when you take Quentin Tarantino's filmography and you look at Jackie Brown, which is a really competently made movie, but it doesn't quite have the same spark. It doesn't feel as personal to Tarantino as his other movies. You know, so so I do wonder if maybe this movie had some some outside involvement, uh, kind of dictating where it goes, or or if they just, you know, shot for something and didn't quite hit it. Yeah, I think that I would definitely agree with that in that there's a polish to Synchronic that is very impressive, right? And you can see where that extra money went to and extra resources, and you can see really their skills from a technical aspect this is as refined as it's ever been, and it shows that they can really back that up with, and granted, the special effects in the film aren't necessarily the best I've ever seen, but in terms of like their very hyper-specific sort of universe that they've created, I think that these are the best effects that they've had so far in terms of just both the presentation of them and literally kind of like how they play out throughout the film. Um, so from that regard, I definitely agree, and I was definitely happy that the film leads with that, right? The film opens with, I think, one of the most impressive Aspect, uh, sections of the film, which is like these two people, they take this drug Synchronic, which is like this new designer drug that has some uh, pretty otherworldly uh, side effects, and that's putting it lightly, but you see these two people and they take it and then basically another point in time begins to blend with their own. So the girl that's in the hotel room takes it and all of a sudden the hotel bed she's sitting on ends up in uh, the rainforest or the Amazon or something like that back in the day, thousands of years potentially. And so to get to see that play out with the music and then of course she notices periodically there's like foliage coming through the wall and then she's completely back in time right and then she's surrounded by uh, a tribesman of some sort and just kind of the wildlife and then of course she gets bit by that snake but the way the whole way that that scene is presented i think has a level of polish to it that really shows like these guys have refined their kind of like trippy otherworldly vision and this is, I think, the best representation of that looking back and kind of where they came from to this moment. Um, I kind of just wish that we had had more moments like this initial moment throughout the entire course of the film. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, maybe um, they almost needed more 
either, you know, throw away single scene junky characters or, or to have more kind of trippy things like that. Unexpected things happen to the main characters when they start to get involved with the drug later. Because, yeah, that opening scene, like, there are a couple of shots, like, you know, the woman looking up at the wall and then you're just seeing, like, bits of foliage and then a, a human kind of partially melded with it where the where it's like the, uh, you know, she's kind of caught between two timelines for a moment. Or, uh, or there's that part where uh, the guy's in the elevator and he's looking up and then all of a sudden, like, the top of the elevator is just sky, like he's in the, the desert somehow. And, you know, that, that part where you're being drawn into the experience that they're having, but you're also kind of curious about, like, well, okay, what are the actual implications? Like, what does this drug actually do? Is definitely the strongest part of the movie to me. So it starts off really, you know, really powerful. Yeah, and I think that the second scene that I think really capitalizes on the kind of just concept of the film is the one when uh, Anthony Mackie's character finally takes the drug, and that's um, the paramedic Steve, and he begins to kind of travel in time, and he goes back to the swamp in Louisiana and hundreds of years ago, and just the way that we see sort of the house melt away, and his sort of like present mm -hmm. melt away, and then he's just, he's knee deep in the swamps, and there's a gator coming after him, and then there's like this old conquistador uh, character running towards him. I mean, it's such a trippy and it almost has this kind of like twilight zone vibe to it where your reality is literally blending away and it was great to see them have kind of just the visual fidelity to back up that concept um and i think that yeah the film really does a good job of kind of presenting that concept but i always felt that they weren't doing enough with that concept and it's something that left me feeling really disappointed on my second watch through of the film because there's so much potential there and we know that they're capable of making something weird something unique unlike the witch uh we've seen before and so to have it come off feeling so tame despite having the technical prowess to pull it off yeah. just kind of felt like it was a missed opportunity in a lot of ways because you have that awesome moment where anthony mackie's in the swamp and then it's like two minutes of him standing there looking around and then somebody comes and they try to kill him and then he just jumps back to the present and then that scene is kind of just over and i was like i would rather than I was expecting them to just do something more than just kind of like show us the past, show how the past can like influence the future potentially, or sort of just an interesting sort of like perversion of the two uh, realities. Yeah. Yeah. Tame is actually a really good way to put it. And um, hopefully we can get to the bottom of, of exactly why it feels that way. Cause I'm, I still don't think I completely have my finger on it, but the part of the, you know, the thing of watching the whole rest of their filmography, leading up to this is that it's led me to expect something that is anything but tame from them and, and i don't want to uh, i don't want to get too down on this movie because i think it's actually a, a perfectly fine movie like it's uh it's definitely better than average but i uh i really wasn't looking forward to rewatching it you know like th there weren't very many things that i was excited to revisit and i think it's because of that kind of tameness to it like when you um well first off when you have a movie about time travel or people being displaced from time, my brain is going to start trying to put pieces together. Like, you know, we've seen Christopher Nolan movies <laughs> at this point. Like, you're going to assume there's some kind of meta game that the director is playing and try to, like, figure out what's actually going on. So just assuming that one of the main characters was going to take the synchronic drug at some point in the movie, I started to think that there were going to be implications about, you know, maybe the fact that you take it in the future already influences your past because you're starting to mess with things. So maybe even before he's taken the drug in the movie, you know, some of these these scenes that 
seem like you don't know where they're going. Like maybe there was going to be a, uh, you know, something where they, they kind of messed with the timeline mm -hmm. and they're retroactively feeling the consequences of that. And of course the movie never uh, really goes into any of that. You know, it never really deals with any of those, any of the more, uh, I guess, existential, like, consequences of this kind of drug. Yeah, usually my big complaint with time travel movies is that they try to explain something that is too complicated to really grasp in the course of a 90-minute movie or two-hour movie to the degree where it's mm -hmm. like, are you really going to waste time trying to explain something in the kind of just like the nitty, breaking it down to the uh, umpteenth degree in terms of like making sure the audience understands? Or are you going to go the looper route? And that's like the example that I always give when talking about time travel movies in that in Looper, old Joe and new Joe, they're like, well, we're not going to talk about time travel because then we're going to sit here all day making <laughs> diagrams with straws. Like that scene is such a perfect moment because it's like, you don't, it doesn't matter how it works. This is the implications of it. And the, the what <laughs> that's happening is much more important than kind of like the why behind it for me at least. And I think this film, it's almost presented so simplistically that you're no longer there's like no mystery to it. And even if I ne don't necessarily ever need yeah. to understand like how the, how time travel works down to sort of the nitty gritty details of it, like at least that mystery is still there. It's still some unknowingness to it. Whereas synchronic, I feel like the time travel elements are so simplistic and it's spelled out in black and white to us. It's so it's literal, so literal yeah. that there's no mystery to it anymore. So it's almost like, like you had said, there's, we're, you're, it's not complicated enough to start thinking about the implications other than you can become stuck in the past and you obviously yeah. want to return to the present. When it's that literal, the sort of mystery behind it and the wonderment of it just isn't really there to the degree where I'm like, well, I hope he gets back to uh, in time before he gets stuck. And that was kind <laughs> of like the end of it. Whereas the overarching ramifications yeah. aren't there. And so the stakes at that point are pretty low for me at least or, or the stakes are just very familiar like it's a it's a movie about again just to repeat it it's a movie about a drug that takes you back in time that should have some pretty crazy you know staggering ramifications but what we're worried about in the movie is always can he get back to the one spot at the right time you know it's 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 almost like a like a james bond movie kind of concern like it's very cut and dry it's very just like like live or die you know it's there's nothing uh, existential or abstract about it and again I'm, I'm trying to put myself back when um i first saw the movie you know the, that first maybe 30 minutes of it and was still guessing as to what it was all about and at that point it was a lot more intriguing like you see things like in one of the junkies houses they write you know time is a lie on the wall there are unexplained things where it's, you know it's clear that the the timelines have been merging in strange ways like when uh you know you find like the burn victim who's holding onto a the remains of the doorknob and stuff like that and I would have liked to see a lot more of that, where it's like, where it isn't just quite as you're in the past time, now you're in the present time. Like something where it's more like things are bleeding into each other. You know, like maybe people are getting kind of uh, stuck between the time periods and they're, they're not quite in one or the other. You know, I, I just, I thought they would be, uh, you know, pushing it in a different direction. Yeah, and I think that that's why we keep coming back to this feeling very tame, right? Because that blend, this is the perfect setup for a blending of both realities, the past and the present, mm -hmm. and seeing how one or the other can actually come into the other's uh, reality and existence. And there's so much potential for that. And yet, I feel like the time travel mechanics are just based around uh, Anthony Mackie's eventual character arc, where it's just saving his partner's daughter, right? 
where the only reason that yeah. he's able to stay in the past is because he has in what is it, an underdeveloped pineal gland. I think that's kind of like the the which <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's basically kind of just gibberish in terms of that. But it's like that one little element feels like such a sort of like ham-fisted plot device that it really renders exploring the realities merging in a way that is very limiting. And again, like getting back to X marks the spot before your time runs out is just very mundane. I mean, it like you said, it's very cut and dry. And we know that these two are much more capable than just sort of cut and dry stakes. Like they're very capable Absolutely. of making a complex world with lots of different parameters to it, supernatural wise. And you don't really truly understand what that means for your reality. I think back to just the time loops in their previous two films, Resolution mm -hmm. and um, The Endless and seeing like they really capture how devastating the time loop is for other people, how fundamentally horrifying that is. And like they, they took that concept of there's one guy that's stuck in like a six second loop or something. And you're like, oh, uh, when you hear that, it's like, oh, that's hilarious. He's stuck in the same six seconds. But they're able to make that like very heartbreaking and very personal for a character that mm -hmm. you don't know anything about or necessarily care for initially or even know they exist. And so to make that little moment like incredibly messed up and have this emotional weight to it, I felt like this movie was kind of just devoid of a lot of emotional investment for me at least. Um, I didn't find I necessarily cared about a lot of the characters in this movie just because of kind of I found them to be very cliched, I think. And I think that this is something that made my second rewatch me enjoy it even less than I think I did initially, just because I found I was not really engaged, whether it be sort of the tameness of the world and the sort of time travel elements and especially the characters themselves. But I'm curious, what did you kind of think about the characters? Um, Steve and Dennis, the paramedics played by Anthony Mackie and uh, Jamie Dornan. Ah, well, that's a, that's an interesting way to put it because, because yeah, I guess the first time I was watching it, I was expecting that you know, I was expecting something trippy and psychological uh, to come from the horror. And then after watching the first time, knowing that that's not really what I was going to get from it, I did try to focus on the characters a little bit more. And man, does that fall flat. Yeah. Like, uh, and, it, and it's interesting, um, there are really only two standout characters to me. Uh, and that's, you know, Anthony Mackie's character and the, uh, the wife of uh, his partner, who didn't have much screen time, but I actually found pretty believable. And, uh, and both of them, they seem to be able to really, without saying what their motivations are, because they're, they're both, or at least Anthony Mackie is a character who is meant to be very closed off. Like part of the purpose is, or part of his point is that he doesn't talk about what he's feeling. He, uh, he's literally, you know, dying and uh, doesn't tell his best friend about that. And there are all these little moments where uh, you get a, a great sense of who uh, his character is. Like uh, one thing that I really liked was when uh, he's kind of had what, what's clearly a one-night stand of someone they pick up at the bar. And there's this great moment where it's like, you can see he kind of, he's done this so many times before, he's, he's being gentlemanly and polite, and then he, he literally ends it with a handshake. It's like, but, and then he feels a little bit sad about that, like visually, but he never says anything about that. He never complains about, uh, you know about the way he's living his life I, I guess he does a little bit in comparison to uh you know he he does kind of mention that you know his friend has a family and everything and he should value that but uh but like it's little moments like that that kind of sell me on his character like you you get this sense that he's kind of time has passed him by he's never fully connected to anything he's a little bit regretful of that 
and uh, and it puts his character in a great place to then be you know facing his own death. Uh, the problem is his partner, <laughs> who is I thought was just bland uh, the first time, and I'm going to come out and say I think he's actually pretty badly written uh, after the second uh, viewing. Like it's a it's a character who doesn't to me have any of those moments where we just get to where he just shows how he's feeling. He always has to tell it. You know, he's always in the bar saying, "Hey, my character arc is that I have this family and I should be happy, but I'm not." Like he, I feel like he comes out and just straight up says that like three times in the movie, and then just kind of mopes his way from scene to scene. And I just, I never bought that character, I, and I never knew how he's supposed to feel about him. Like, I, I got the impression that he was kind of an absentee father. He wasn't very good. But then, like in the scene where he's playing basketball with his daughter, I can't tell if we're supposed to view him as trying his best and just not quite getting it and, and being kind of endearing for trying. I don't know, it just, it just came out as this mopey guy who was just completely displaced and I couldn't buy it at all. Yeah, it was really difficult to kind of build any sort of... Again, like it's difficult to know how you're supposed to feel about that character because he just tells us how he's miserable. He tells us how nothing is supposedly mm -hmm. going his way, even though like he has the ideal life to a certain extent, like he's got a, a loving family and all these things, and yet he's still not fulfilled. But if he's not fulfilled, we're never indicated, like there's no indication of what his further aspirations are in life, other than him and him and yeah. Anthony Mackey had this dream of going to med school or something, but now they're kind of stuck in this job. But like, how are you supposed to be sympathetic for him if he's essentially like laying blame on his family when he doesn't have the uh, initiative maybe to like, progress his career to to the point that he wants to or something like that but yeah he was a character who just talks about how miserable they are but then i don't really understand how you're supposed to feel bad for them when they're not actively sort of showing us that they want to have more than that or that there's a specific thing that they want to work at it's just them getting shit-faced for half the movie and bitching about his life and <laughs> i mean it leads into, I think Anthony Mackie is very much the stronger of the two performances and he just isn't necessarily given a lot to do other than pop pills or drink from bottles uh, for half of the movie. And then when you have these two scenes between these two guys, they keep trying to convey this friendship, this sort of brotherhood between them. But then like, why is he friends with uh, Jamie Dornan's character? Like it does, there's no indication that other than they both ended up working together or they both went to medical school or something together but there's no real i don't see the bond there i just see no, one guy that not. spends all day complaining and the other guy who's not willing to open up about anything and there's nothing constructive in that relationship right i could see how if they're going to have one guy be closed off one guy is way too forthcoming and not willing to put in the work to come about some type of change but nothing interesting is done with those character dynamics so it's two people giving two performances one much stronger than the other. But for me, they both kind of fell flat because they don't necessarily go in an interesting direction or a direction that really complements the time travel predicament that they find themselves in. Well, that Anthony Mackie well, does. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Also, I, I can't figure out for the life of me how this actually connects to the movie itself, like how their relationship really you know, connects to the, the themes of the rest of the movie when they start introducing the time travel stuff. But um, but yeah, it, it's like, like I agree with what you said about the character uh, not having initiative, because in the one sense it's like I can understand a character being uh, you know being disaffected uh, in his life, but then I want to think you know if the character is strong, then I can think about how they would actually address it. Like you know what is this guy going to do? 
like what that did something go wrong in his, his past that he needs to address or or is he going to move on to something else like you never get any of that kind of sense you just get the sense that this character is sad and he basically is sad all the time and uh and i know these directors can write these kinds of characters really well because literally every other movie they've made has hinged on some kind of a relationship like that and they've all been you know completely believable but here what it kind of reminded me of is um have you ever had that sense in like an like animation or a game or, or even just somebody like ADRing a line into a film where you can immediately tell that two characters are not actually interacting with each other they've been recorded like at different times like on different days and then they're just kind of splicing the lines uh back in that's how every conversation with Anthony Mackie and his friend felt uh, to me it's like just kind of two characters kind of reinforcing their own individual character and uh and talking about their troubles but not actually like bouncing anything off of each other you know it's, it's very there's strange. no real rhythm to i i would even say there's not a real rhythm to the movie throughout the entire thing whether it just be the characters and that i think and this kind of will bleed a little bit into one of my other qualms with the movie is just the terms of like pacing and there's sort of like a start and stop throughout the entire film in terms of how they're approaching the family angle and then they start talking about the time travel stuff. I mean, there's a real choppiness to everything that really kind of just ruins the fluidity of whether it be exploring these characters and their sort of predicaments or then even the time travel elements. For me, it just it very it felt very disjointed and I totally agree with what you said about this feeling that they're like ADRing their lines in as if they're not actually in the same room playing off of one another because it really does feel like people are just kind of spouting this exposition at one another and then they're not really reacting. It's almost like they're waiting for their turn to speak rather than listening, which I found comes across also in like the one uh, racist cop that keeps reoccurring where he like almost shoots Anthony Mackie. He's like, what do you expect showing up to work like Tupac, which was hilarious. Uh, you, you could hear the mic drop on that. But uh, it was one of those characters where it's just like he shows up. He just says some exposition about Synchronic. And then he says a second piece of information at the second crime scene. And then I think he even shows up the third or something like that. And it's just like, there are these characters that just keep showing up that feel like they're just there to give us context, but it, they might as well be looking directly at the screen and just saying it to the viewer because it's mm -hmm. so rigid and how it blends into a conversation or how other people interact with them. Um, especially like the, um, the first overdose scene, which I like because I think that that really kind of like gets the conspiracy hooks into me, right? You mentioned that on the wall of the crack house or whatever, they have uh, time is a lie. And then of course you have a guy mm -hmm. with a wound that you can't explain. And then there's a blade in the wall that looks like it's from 300 years ago, covered in blood and all this stuff. And that's really interesting because I'm like, okay, I'm trying to figure out how this world works, how the past is uh, coming into play in the future. But none of those things are really explored in an interesting way. Like I thought there was going to be this idea that there's this cult building around Synchronic. These people are aware of how the time travel works. Yeah. And then it is these two guys coming together and trying to deal with the ramifications of that or potentially stopping that. And maybe I was expecting there to be this kind of like conspiracy, but at a street level, right? Because that would make sense why they're paramedics in this idea that they are on the front lines of this new dangerous designer drug. Um, and it just never really capitalizes on that in a way that's interesting. I mean, we have to get five or six different uh, 
scenes that kind of just spell out like synchronic is bad. You should not use synchronic. Like there are <laughs> ramifications for it. And I didn't see anything really bleeding together in a way that was interesting or in a way that kind of just, it made the entire experience feel cohesive in a way that it's building to something. It kind of just feels like a lot of these sporadic events that don't really circle back around. It's sort of just like a lot of examples of synchronic, but there's no ramifications larger than maybe just this sort of um, rescuing my best friend's daughter kind of narrative that gets, I felt kind of ham-fisted towards the end of the uh, end of the film. Yeah, no, that, that ends up being the only stake uh, in the whole movie. And I, I agree about, like, I wanted to see, like, like one thing I was wondering about is what do the junkies who are taking the drug, what do they know about it when they're getting mm. into it? Like, even that would have been interesting, like, just to see, like, how is this, how is this sold to people? Like, what do they expect? How do they prepare for it? I, I kind of like that detail in the uh, the opening of, you know, they're, they're dropping, like, the couple, they're dropping pills, and then one of them is drawing on a sketch mm. pad. Like, you know, you might do when you take like LSD or something just to see like, okay, what happens to my brain while I'm doing this? Like, again, what kind of, what kind of information do they have going into it? And that's all just drops. You know, you, you get this plot with the guy, one of the guys who is involved in making it. And they basically imply that, oh yeah, uh, so Synchronic was pretty dangerous. So we stopped production <laughs> and we're trying to get all the yeah. pills and then it's just yeah. gone. You know, and Anthony Mackie is there with the, uh, the last of the pills. There's still a little bit of mystery leading up to that. And then you get to what I think might be the most fun scene or fun segment of the movie, which is when uh, Mackie is experimenting with the pills. And and I like that he was recording what was happening. But the problem with that is that literally answers any question you could have about Synchronic. Like he documents exactly how it works to explain the second half of the movie when he's gonna use it to save the daughter. And then there's no more mystery to it at all. You know, you just teleport to a different time based on what location you're in when you take it. And then if you're like him with the, you know, pineal gland plot device, you need to take another pill to get back at the right time. And then that's it, cut and dry. You know, there's no real mystery to Synchronic after that. Yeah, I mean, not only does he master the mystery at the 46 minute mark of the film, I had to jot it down because I was like, I it, this movie with the pacing, I'm just <laughs> like, I can't believe how long it takes to get to where we already assume it's going. It almost takes an hour for him to right where you don't yeah exactly and then once it gets to that point finally within five minutes of that scene he's already mastered his knowledge of synchronic and to the point where it's Mm -hmm. just like well where do you go from there and the ideal place would be you just keep expanding on the blending of and blurring the lines between the past and the present but it never does that and again these ventures into the past i mean it's like something that I could have came up with. Oh, he goes to the past as a black man, obviously, and he's going to encounter Klansmen from back in the day, or he's going to end up in the tundra or something like that. But there's no sort of like, I don't know. I I don't like to get, I guess I'm getting down on people for their sort of like create the creative limitations of the film. But I was just like every single twist, there was no twists or turns in the film. It was exactly what I would have expected a time travel movie to do. And again, it's kind of yeah. like these two guys, I mean, you go into a film, you don't sort of bash a movie for not not being what you wanted it to be, but it's like, we have evidence that these two are much more creative than what I think we got because of exactly. how wildly, um, I don't know about different, but I'm just in terms of each film they've made, it has expanded on this core cosmic horror kind of concept in ways that are surprising, that feel fresh. Something like Spring, I mean, at the end of the day, it's this body horror monster movie, but they're able to take a very sort of 
um, run-of-the-mill genre or subgenre and make it interesting. They're able to make it personable. They're able to sort of have the monster moments in a way sort of bleed throughout the movie that it feels surprising even when you know inevitably she's going to turn into a monster type thing. But in this, it was like every single instance where it's supposed to be this like, oh shit moment when they're going back into the past, I was like, I was kind of like just waiting for something to happen that was unexpected. And it was just, again, along the lines of exactly what you would expect. And that from these two, given how creative they are and how talented they are, I was just like, I wonder if some of this is getting lost or in terms of just like the increased budget, the increased star power, is their creativity being limited to a certain extent or is it a result of there's just too much going on, there's too many balls juggling in the air given how much bigger this movie is than their previous films? Yeah, it is very strange because I don't want to just assume that, you know, with outside involvement that, you know, that, that made like the scope or the direction of the film get kind of uh, muddy, but but I can't help but be suspicious that that's what happened because yeah, like you said, they've uh, they've taken ideas like this before. You know, psychological time manipulation is is definitely a a thing that they've revisited uh, twice already, and they always go in unexpected and in wild directions with it. And this was just such a straight putt that I couldn't help but keep expecting that I was going to be tricked. You know, I, I kept thinking there was some kind of twist coming that was going to recontextualize things. And uh, to a point you made earlier about the the pacing and editing being very strange in this movie, that kept making me suspicious that there was something else at play. Because even the way, um, you know, the, for the whole like first half of the film, there's really just kind of languid pace of going from the EMT job to then just shots kind of fading into Anthony Mackie dealing with his health problems and then fading back into the EMT job or then back into you know family situation. And the scenes don't really have a very natural flow uh, to each other. And then there are even some things like, this is probably just on me, but you know, the first shot that, or the first sequence you have of the couple taking the drug, you have this bearded guy kind of disappearing into the desert and this weird psychedelic vision. And then the next scene is a bearded guy on the floor of a junkie house, like with a blade through him. And I kept thinking like, is this maybe even the same guy? Like or just different outcomes of something that could have happened. And so, but little things like that kept making me not follow the actual linear progression of the movie and kept thinking it was going off in these other directions. You know, again, thinking that maybe because Anthony Mackie had, you know, taken this drug at some time in the future, it had screwed up a whole timeline leading up to it. And of course, it's never that complicated. It's just Anthony Mackie goes there, comes back if he gets, uh, if he, like you said, if he gets to the X marks the spot at the right time, and then has to save his friend's daughter. It's just, it's deceptively simple for, uh, for what I expect from these guys. Yeah, the deceptively part is definitely the best way to put it because I definitely thought that as well the first time I watched the movie, I was like, this has to be him experiencing all these different events out of order, right? They're not in sync with one another. And I assumed it was going to be, at the end of the movie, he was either a junkie on Synchronic that is just sort of like dancing through his past or... It's just once you take it, you're stuck in this sort of endless exploration of memories that are not in sync with one another. Yeah. But to have it not end like that after we get the ending that we get, it's like it made me annoyed, actually, on my rewatch because I was like, so there isn't anything behind this. It's just this is very disjointed feeling editing. I mean, the one scene that comes to mind is when he gets his news about the cancer, right? He has that interaction. Also, 
Um, I feel like so many characters in this movie, I don't know whether it's the writing or it's the actors themselves, they're just so incredibly awkward. Like the doctor scene when he's meeting with the doctor and he's telling him this stuff, I feel like the doctor is just like very cold or just, it seems like he's just ma very matter of fact about the fact that he's going to die. I don't know, there's this sort of like energy to everything I... that comes off with feeling very sort of just, there's something out of place and it was that instance. And then when the doctor, the second chemist breaks into his house and he's talking to this guy about this and it's just like, the guy is so erratic and squirrely and stuff. And I don't know if that's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be his character or if that's just that actor's methodology or whatever. It's just, there's, there's something so, to these characters that just comes off in a way that feels very strange to me. I'm glad you bring that up because I, I have a theory about that where, it, so the, the movies we watched from, uh, from uh, these two directors from before have all kind of been from the point of view of a certain kind of character, right? Like if it's always from the point of view of a, what, 20 something or, or early thirties, probably a college graduate or college dropout uh, guy. Like all the characters are kind of coming from the same kind of, basically from the same point that you would probably be if you were a you know, budding filmmaker, right? And now he's trying to write, or now they're, now they're trying to write like 40 something year old EMTs and doctors and scientists. And I feel like they're not changing their conversational tone. You know, there, there's something very kind of like, there's something very uh, drinking buddy about like the way that they write characters in their movies. And they didn't quite get away from that in this movie, even though they're writing a much more, a much wider variety of characters. And and yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like the, the doctor doesn't sound like a doctor. The uh, the scientist who made Synchronic doesn't sound like a scientist who made Synchronic. The the one character that I thought was like strangely effective was the uh, the mom of the uh, you know the wife of the uh, the other EMT. Um, and the way that she would talk to the daughter, like there was something kind of authentic about that to me. About like I'm trying to talk to you as an adult. You know, I'm trying to to relate on those kinds of terms, but I'm also still trying to keep a little bit of authority. But it, it almost had like that that feeling of like. The mom is trying to be a little bit cool and not quite getting it, but but you can tell she's doing her best. And that felt like a very observed performance. But um, everybody else, even Anthony Mackie and uh, I'm never gonna remember the other guy's uh, name. Jamie Dornan. Jamie Dornan. Uh, even then, they just they felt like you know college drinking buddies, the way, the way that they would talk. So yeah, that that threw things off. Oh, quite a bit. Yeah, I think that had a big part of like just my lack of investment because I think a lot of these scenes, they just felt so, the words that are coming out of these all these characters' mouths, with the exception of the wife. I don't. I totally agree, and um, I want to give her credit because she was phenomenal. Uh, it was uh, Katie Asselton uh, who plays Tara, Dennis's wife. I mean, she okay. feels like the most authentic and just real person in the whole movie. Where, like you said, everybody else feel the mm -hmm. words coming out of other people's mouths, they feel so awkward coming at it's like somebody doing an interpretation of like a much younger person than they actually are almost yeah. which just it makes yeah, it makes it difficult to connect with these people to the point where it i wouldn't i guess maybe i'm harping a little too much on that but it's not necessarily like it's not necessarily just like not like it's funny or it's just weird it's just comes off as being very 
disjointed, I think, and just in terms of like, nothing feels very authentic. It feels like they're playing a role rather than actually embodying a character, yes. no matter if they're the protagonists or these minor secondary characters, which just makes kind of like every interaction with them seem like out of body almost in terms of just like, what is this building to? Because there's something about, again, it comes back to this idea. We assume that the film is building to something to explain the awkwardness or the weirdness that's behind the scenes. And it's disappointing mm -hmm. when you learn that it's not. And that feels more just like, I don't want to say inferior filmmaking, but it just maybe it is the ramifications of their being told or dumb things down, or maybe they're trying to juggle too many balls at one time, given again, the production uh, development, things like that. But I can't speculate too much on that, but I would bet that has something to do with it. But um, in terms of like the pacing, the scene that I wanted to mention that feels like the most uh, one of the most disjointed parts is when Anthony Mackie is sitting in his car. He's looking at those pamphlets uh, about support groups for terminal cancer. And then it cuts to Dennis playing basketball with Brianna, who is like, quote unquote, having an emo moment, as Dennis puts it, which shows you how involved he is in his daughter's life. That's just like the reductive way that he's <laughs> sort of like dealing with his child's um, uh, formative years, I guess, if you want to call it that. But they kind of just have this conversation that doesn't have any ramifications for the rest of the film. And they do that a couple of times. There's another scene where Dennis has a memory. He's going to knock on his wife's door and it cuts to a memory of him and his wife in bed. And then Brianna knocks on the door and comes in and that he's like, what do you want to do for dinner? And then she goes, I don't care. He's like, let's go out and get pizza or something. And then that's the end of that flashback. There's no, there's no, uh, it's not even like a special or a tender moment of dialogue or an interaction. It's, that's his memory of his daughter. Where do you want to go for dinner? Yeah, like yeah, really. you would, again, it kind of, I guess maybe that shows just how detached he is from her life. Maybe if it's almost pathetic, I guess, in that sense, it's like, that is the, the memory you have of your missing child is that she interrupted you and your wife one day and was like, what do you want to do for dinner? <laughs> I mean, but again, it's hard to know if that was intentional because I remember that basketball scene too, because, uh, you know, she talks about you know, going to school, but I don't know what I want to do with my life. Cool. You know, that's, that's why your kid is being emo. Like, let's uh, let's unpack that and let's uh, let's actually have a father-daughter moment. And it, the thing he says is like, "Well, you used to like X Files. Maybe you can be an <laughs> FBI agent." And I was like, and I was thinking that like, I really can't tell if that's a comic mm -hmm. bit. Like, is that supposed to be funny, or is that supposed to show how bad of a father he is that he literally can't think of any interest his daughter has? except this memory of watching like a TV show with her when they were a kid. It's like, I, I don't know how to right. read it. Yeah, and if they are using those two instances to show how shitty of a father he is, why do we give a fuck that his daughter's missing? Like, at that point, we don't yeah. know enough about, she's obviously never a, um, a major character in the film other than her servicing as like a plot device, right? You have, I think, one, one mm -hmm. or two brief moments of dialogue with her and uh, Anthony Mackie. But other than that, she's not a big part of the film other than obviously her disappearance kind of being the uh, genesis of Anthony Mackie's character arc. But but even then, it's, it's the genesis of uh, Mackie's character arc. You know, it, it's not like uh, Dornan really has, he's, he takes a whole back seat to that. So it's like, we don't, we don't really see him develop or, or change or anything. It's just all in and all, And then after that basketball scene, it cuts back to uh, Anthony Mackie sitting in his truck. And it was just like, what? How does, how does him staring at his phone of Dennis trigger a memory that Anthony Mackie doesn't have himself? It would be very different if it was triggering a memory of Dennis's daughter and Anthony Mackie, but 
it's a memory that Anthony Mackie doesn't even have because it's not his memory. So that led me to believe I that, think about that there was something again, there's again, not to just be like, oh, I thought it was going to be something else, but that would lead you to believe like, oh, potentially he has other people's memories because of Synchronic because they share a memory of some sort. Mm-hmm. But when it's not even his memory, like what the fuck is the purpose of having that scene at that yeah. juncture and then having it bookended with him in his truck again as if it is his own memory. I just, there were so many, inst- a couple instances like that where I was just like, is this just bad editing? Is this leading to something? But it just felt like bad editing to me. Yeah, and, and is it okay to uh, to jump ahead to the ending a bit? Because that'll explain why we're we're so focused on these characters. Yeah, so uh, so again, after, I think you said about 46 minutes in, we, you know, delve into the mystery of Synchronic, and then five minutes later, we solve it. And the whole rest of the movie is just about, let's find a way to save uh, Dorian's daughter. And the ending of the movie hinges on whether uh, Anthony Mackie can, you know, basically come back. He finds the daughter. Uh, they have a goofy little confrontation with a villain at the end, which also felt just weirdly out of place. But again, not, not where I was expecting the movie to go. Uh, you know, the daughter returns, and then Anthony Mackie is kind of stuck between the two timelines for a second. And they just kind of imply that whether he's able to return or not is based on the bond that he has with people, which kind of comes down to Dorian. And then the movie leaves on that note, like it's ambiguous, which is fine, except that I have no information to go on, like how strong his bond is with his friend, because we've just seen so little of that connection the whole movie. So uh, so really that whole second half of the movie, it, it's not playing off of, you know, the ramifications of, of Synchronic as the drug or you know, what the what the effects are or, or how people are kind of like handling it. It's just about, you know, how deep is the friendship between Mackie and Dornan? And that has fallen so flat in the movie leading up to that, that it just, it completely, it, it makes the ending so limp to me. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, how can you have something hinge on a friendship when we haven't explored that friendship past? These are two buddies that get shit-faced together, which is not indicative of a friendship <laughs> that has much validity past hey, you want to go get fucked up? And I mean, that's fine if you have friendships like that. But at the end of the day, like, why is this friendship so strong? Is it just because it's the only one? And that's not necessarily a good basis Mm -hmm. for portraying this as a good relationship just because it's the only one. And so I was really waiting for them. I mean, there could have been such a better use of the flashbacks if it was an instance that shows both of these characters being fundamentally good people in spite of their flaws. If we had been given an example of yeah. uh, Anthony Mackie not just being this paramedic cliche where he's addicted to painkillers and he's an alcoholic, like, is there an example of him being an overtly good person? Is there an example of, um, I'm forgetting his name as well now, uh, Jamie Dornan's, just like an example of him actually being a good father at some point past, I played basketball with my daughter once or I asked her where she wanted to get takeout from or whatever. It's like, that would have been an opportunity to show like, okay, these two have clearly strayed from where the people that they used to be and the people that they probably wanted to be forever, essentially. But if we're just kind of seeing them both at their lowest, but then never given proof that they were ever anything more than this, at least in terms Mm -hmm. of Anthony Mackie, maybe it makes sense. Like, okay, he's moving on from being this self-absorbed addict to sacrificing his life for the life of his uh, best friend's daughter, right? But then Jamie Dornan's character is just like, yeah, I'm just, 
am I going to stop being a piece of a shit father? Um, I don't know. Maybe, hopefully. Uh, it just, it doesn't seem like, again, his character is just so underwhelming because we're not given any examples that he was ever a, th- a good father, a good husband, whatever. He just seems to be this yeah. mopey guy. And we're frequently told that he, or he tells us rather how unhappy he is. Whereas we're never given any proof that there's anything actually wrong. Like his one memory of his family mm-hmm. is like, it doesn't amount to anything past what do you want for dinner? But it shows at least like they weren't always fighting or there wasn't an awkwardness. There was a tenderness there. But again, that's such a, that scene is so fleeting that there's no real larger implications on the film as a whole, his character, the plot and as such. On that note, I, I noticed something else kind of unusual about, you know, as good as the cinematography is, it's all pretty one note in the movie. And that had this effect of when, um, you know, when uh, Dorian's daughter goes missing, the color palette doesn't change. Uh, everything is still kind of, everything is very like morose and dark and, and it's effective for like that moment, especially when, um, you know, he and his wife are sitting around the table and they're trying to deal with what's happening. The, the wife is kind of freaking out because she's, she's still not quite coming to terms, uh, you know, with the fact that her daughter is missing. And uh, that in isolation, I think is a great scene but it has the exact same tone and color palette and everything of the scenes that came before. Like everything was already so kind of dour and mopey. And kind of going back to what we were talking about with the somewhat awkward dialogue is even when the characters are just kind of hanging out before work and, you know, just kind of like jabbing at each other and everything, you know, dialogue is essentially funny. It still has that same kind of look of everything being kind of, you know, dark and morose. So when it tries to shift gears to show that like, like, I think what they were trying to get across is that Dornan was kind of just along for the ride in his life, and then everything fell apart when his daughter went missing. But it just looks like the rest of the movie. You know, it, it really just feels like this, it, it kind of reinforces the idea of this character that isn't in control of anything. He's just kind of being you know, dragged along from one situation to another. And that makes it really hard for me to empathize with him as a character. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, they're, the filmmaker's technical prowess in terms of maybe just the way that they capture scenes and whatnot has improved. And there is definitely a less of a sort of like amateurish portrayal of everything, but it's not visually interesting. I don't think for a lot of the film. Right. And I think that that would have been something that could have been explored in a way that would have made those time travel scenes much more unique, or maybe there could have been a presentational change in terms of really, obviously you are always going to know when they're traveling back in time. But even if you present those scenes differently in a way that is whether it be drastic or whether it be subtle, it still makes those scenes more visually engaging. And I think referring to it as one note definitely uh, definitely tracks because there's no real, it, again, like it's just kind of this one experience all the way through. And I feel like there's no, there's nothing, no mystery to it. There's nothing thrilling about it. You're either engaged or you're not. And for me, my second rewatch was definitely worse than my first, just because I was like, okay, there's no real moment here I'm looking forward to revisiting just because nothing really stands out other than, okay, the house melts away. You can't miss that. Obviously that's very visually and stimulating and engaging, but that scene is like, that's like 15 or 20 seconds of special effects. And then they, they just do away with yeah. that. And I think that just how, f- I don't want to say flippant, but I think it just, again, it feels like they were just very, very tame in their portrayal of everything, whether it be the characters, whether it be the time travel elements and just the sort of like erratic puzzle piece 
of how everything fits together with no larger meaning behind it. For me, it really just makes a disjointed movie that it, I'm more disappointed. I think I'm very, I'm a lot more disappointed in this maybe than some people just because it's so removed from the quality and the talent that they displayed with their previous films. And mm-hmm. for us to get this film that it just kind of feels slapped together a majority of the time for me is just pretty disappointing. Yeah, it just feels like um, everything that they did in this movie, I've seen them do better in a uh, previous one. You know, even the, uh, we're talking about this ending that's falling limp just because we can't buy, you know, the relationship between these two characters. That's literally how Spring ends. You know, Spring ends so elegantly with like, just, it, it's almost taking like a, it, it's taking a big gamble, right? Like it's saying, it, it's the whole ending and what you take from it is saying, do you buy the relationship between these two characters? And we came to the conclusion in our episode about that, that absolutely we did. Like, and a lot of that I think comes down to the chemistry of the actors and everything, but I don't know. It's, it just didn't, uh, didn't come together in this one. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned the character chemistry because as good as Anthony Mackie is again, I think it's, a, but here's the thing. I don't think it's a good pairing of the two actors. Again, we've said our bit on Jamie, uh, Dornan, what we think of him. Um, but even if he was paired with somebody, I don't necessarily know that the relationship would flourish any better just because of like the writing. Again, like the movie has these sort of, I'm curious what you think about the film's use of humor because this feels like their most humorous moments and there are so many lines in the film that are clearly just to make people laugh that it kind of fuels my feeling like this movie is just so piecemealed together in a way that it's like, well, nothing's happened here. Let's put a joke in here or let's have some sort of like awkward humor bit that doesn't feel like it's a dark humor bit. It kind of just feels like it's trying to elicit laughter when laughter isn't really appropriate. I mean, they have that moment where, I'll give you two examples from this particular moment. When Anthony Mackie finally tells his partner that he has cancer, he starts talking, he goes, I found out I was dying. My brain, it has a tumor. Like that is just like some of the, the way that it's, not only the way it's delivered, but just nobody would ever say it like that. No one ever has that pause. My brain, it has, it has a two, like that whole delivery and just the way it's written is very awkward. But then to have it followed up with his partner being like, you're going to chemo, bitch. Like it's it just that whole moment. Yeah, is like yeah. clearly it feels like they're trying to elicit a laugh and it obviously is not a moment of laughter. So to have that kind of like Jesse Pinkman moment where it's just like having bitch as the punchline, <laughs> you're just like, huh? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And that I think is actually, I think that's down to the writers. I, I don't feel like that is necessarily someone outside getting involved. I think, cause I, I noticed that in um, the previous movies too, like they do they do tend to want to punch everything up. And the thing is they're good at writing dialogue. Like I, a lot of, like you're right, the, the movie has a lot of funny lines and it actually did make me laugh a lot, but it was always kind of like, or half the time it was like, is this really where I should be laughing? Like, I feel like the characters should be taking this movie a lot more seriously than they actually are. And I, I think um, I think when they come up with a clever line, they have a lot of trouble, you know, not using it. You know, actually just having a little bit more uh, sincerity and, and taking that moment more seriously. Because, yeah, it, it definitely uh, took me out of it. One of the lines that definitely made me laugh is when he, when uh, Anthony Mackie escapes by the, the, uh, the skin on his teeth, he makes it back. Uh, to the porch where Brianna, he thinks Brianna went missing the first time. 
and the girl comes out and she's like, oh, yeah. what are you doing? He's like, you girl, you're high as fuck. And just like, go away. Like Anthony Mackie has such a great comedic delivery. And that's like one of those moments where you're able to laugh about it. Cause he just barely survived getting stuck. Mm-hmm. But then later on in the film, they have just like a couple of moments where he has humor and it's like, it either feels out of place or it's very awkward or again, it's an instance of like, you feel like the characters themselves aren't taking it as seriously as they should be. Like in one point he's, uh, I think Anthony Mackie's in the bar and he's like been trying to find Brianna and he's just like, fuck back to the future. And you're just like, I think you have like more, more, uh, you have more things on, should be on your mind right now. Like finding Brianna rather than ranting about back to the future. But I mean, that's a little nitpicky thing on my part, but it's just, there's this kind of just inconsistent tone that it's almost like I'm not being sold on this world as well as I know they could be. And again, like you said, these two know how to write dialogue. They know how to make characters feel organic to the world. I think um, Resolution was a really great example of that. You have these two people and we immediately feel their history between one another when they're taking Mm -hmm. jabs, the types of humor that they're using. They know how to push each other's buttons and it never feels out of place. Whereas here, again, I guess it all comes back to the friendship. The friendship doesn't feel authentic. So the humor, I think, doesn't land for me in a lot of ways that it might otherwise. Yeah, I think it just comes back to, um, you know, they, uh, in in some ways, I think they're often writing themselves or at least characters that are are kind of based off themselves and their own relationship. And they do have kind of, they do have a, a genuinely funny, like, kind of like snipe at each other, like try to outsmart each other, like be clever in a lot of ways. But it doesn't, yeah, it just, it didn't map onto these two characters. And I'm, I'm trying to think about, um, you know, part of why I might like Anthony Mackie in this movie, or like why, why he works for me more than most of the other characters is just that he is a lot more reserved. Like when he's telling a joke, it's kind of this wry, like, I'm not laughing at this. I'm just kind of saying this to be able to to deal with my own issues. And I don't expect anybody to even react to it. Like he's got this kind of good low-key way of just throwing that out there. But they needed another character. Like whoever they whoever in a parallel universe would have played Dornan's uh, character in this needed to be someone who would kind of like reach out a little bit more. Like like try to push him a little bit more. Because instead it's almost like two characters just kind of sitting back with their arms folded, like in their own little world. Uh, just making jokes and taking shots. Well, there's that scene when they have that kind of rendezvous in the bar after their fight, when they're responding to the voodoo man. Um, They go to the bar, they both sit down and they're not even facing each other. They're facing away from one another. And them facing away from one another is really indicative of just their characters' interactions as a whole with one another, right? It's like, they're just, they're two people that are basically talking to a wall and that comes through. And the idea that we're supposed to be so invested in this relationship when it's basically two people not facing each other for a majority of the movie. I mean, that's how it comes across. And I guess I'm thinking in terms of like, in the future from these two are so, again, I think the world of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, I almost wonder if they should be the ones that are doing the story for a film and then they have another screenwriter or they have screenwriters come in and then take their story idea and apply it to a script because we're seeing that their filmmaking style is being progressed and it is definitely being refined in a way that we wanna see, right? The right direction. And I think conceptually, they still have something there, even if this feels a little dumbed down than what it should be. But I don't know necessarily like if Justin Benson should be the sole writer of the film. It almost feels like these two conceptually are are titans 
but when it comes to actually getting it onto the page almost, it feels like something is lost or maybe it, like we've been saying, it's sort of the, the restrictiveness in terms of the types of characters they can write. Because it feels like as the world of their film gets bigger, then the types of people in it are going to be more varied than the types of people that they are either personally familiar with or the people that occupy these much smaller scaled stories. No, I, I think you nailed it. Like, I think, I think that is the, um, aside from, you know, some editing issues, I think that is the key weak point of this movie is that screenplay. Like, yeah, they, they come up with these really wild ideas uh, for the story. I definitely trust them as filmmakers. I, I definitely trust them to be able to kind of take me along for the ride and come up with uh, cool ideas and, and even just little, you know, details and great set design in the world. Like there are all these, all these things that they just excel at. And, uh, yeah, it just it just comes down to the the screenplay being a little weak uh, sometimes, or or at least in this case. And I'm actually I'm thinking now about you know that's kind of an interesting idea that you put out about the characters are you know they're talking, they're facing away from each other, they're not connecting. I feel like they could have had those scenes play out about as they did, and have that ending that they went for work if there was just one more scene somewhere in the movie where they acknowledged that that's what was happening, and then did something to, I, I don't know so much something to repair it, but maybe if they had, you know, take away one of those, those awkward flashbacks of uh, nothing happening with the family, have some flashback to their relationship earlier on and see where things started to diverge or how things were different at one point. Like, what is it that they're trying to, what is, what is the connection that they actually have? Like, have something pointing to that. Or even have it be something along the lines of, like, they haven't forgiven one another perhaps, or maybe there still is that sort of just that friction between them, but maybe they were just on the cusp of repairing their friendships or they were both on the cusp of yeah. sort of making uh, significant changes in their life that kind of get them to where they want to be in life. But that opportunity is cut short, obviously for Anthony Mackie, that would give a lot of like weight to that. This idea that even if he is dying, potentially he would be able to live out the rest of his days in a way that he would want to. Um, I feel like having some yeah. type of moment like that would really give more emphasis and just give more weight to that ending, which again, like pretty much fell flat. This idea that all of a sudden, like the rescuing the daughter just feels so ham-fisted as a solution to it. Again, it comes back to, it feels mm -hmm. like, of course, why wouldn't, why wouldn't this be the sort of like clean cut ending to this? He needs to rescue the daughter. That's how he's, he's going to sacrifice his life for hers, that type of thing. And it's like, that just feels so cliched in a lot of ways and you kind of get this like weird racist standoff in the past which you're just like okay again you're not really doing a whole lot that you would not expect and i this is something that i would um am curious to get your point on there's a couple instances where when anthony mackie goes into the past obviously being a black man in america 300 years ago or whatever 400 years ago is going to come with some pretty uh some pretty significant risk to his character but then i feel as if there's such an opportunity to make some type of racial comment or racial commentary with that instance or something like that yeah. or there's some type of potential in that that is never addressed it's always just i mean you those scenes can be reduced to man it sucks to be a black man in america in 1700s or something like that but nothing significant is really done with that or no sort of commentary past that sort of rather reductive one i just gave is I'm curious if you saw that as sort of a missed yeah. opportunity uh, like I did. It's definitely a weird choice because I that did I did notice that and I was expecting something more to be made of that. 
And I did actually really like the contrast with, you know, the um, kind of Paleolithic man uh, that he meets, where it starts off like it's going to be some kind of confrontation, but then it's just them sharing a fire. But that's another one where they actually, they undercut it, right? Like he has this moment where he's actually, he's making this connection to something that is, you know, a, a human from a very, very long time ago. Uh, then it just kind of cuts to this like joke moment of him saying like, and then I realized the past fucking yeah. sucks. <laughs> and it's like, it's actually, it's kind of a funny moment, but it's like, well, man, I mean, you could have done something with that, right? Like you have, you go back in time just a few hundred years and then you're vilified just for, you know, just for your genetics, just for who you are. But then you go back thousands and thousands of years to something that isn't even as, you know, as, as like far away from a recognizable human as you can get. And all of a sudden you guys are just bonding over, you know, basic survival, you know, just having fire together around. But nothing really happens uh, from that. And then I think even after that, that's when he has that moment talking about the, the back to the future thing, where he's saying like, why does everybody glorify the past? The past sucked. And I kept thinking they were going somewhere with that whole theme. And and I could see that being something tied into a racial thing as well. And it just, it's not what the movie ends up being about at all. So it's, that was a very strange divergence for them to make. But yeah, it's uh, it just felt like one more thing that, that, that didn't actually go anywhere. Yeah, and I think that that's how I describe this film in that there's a lot of threads left at the end of the movie and they don't necessarily find their home in terms of like where you would assume they're heading and then they kind of just end up trailing off into something that's much more kind of just generic and you've been expecting yeah. in the back of your head at some point it's like yeah this could be an outcome but i know these two are going to go with the more creative one and then you kind of just are left with the ending you assumed and it's like the worst case scenario given how talented and wildly creative these guys are at taking sort of like standardized uh genres and subgenres, but having some type of unique spin or having a much more personal angle on something is a story that i mean spring you've seen that story how many times before and yet it's made personable <laughs> and of course it has a, a bit of a monster yeah. spin to it i don't know if you remember that but uh just this idea that they're taking a very familiar framework and they're making it very real in a way that not a lot of filmmakers mm -hmm. have done that again if you remove the monster from that movie that's the basis of thousands of movies but when you add that sort of mm -hmm. monster element to it that's done very well but then the same amount of time and energy and obviously sort of just fleshing out that relationship and finding two people and writing it and honing their uh, dialogue and whatnot, you're able to take something that is very simple to describe and yet it carries a lot of weight to it, significant weight, to the point that by the mm -hmm. end of the movie, you're like gritting your teeth waiting to see how it ends. And if, if spring ends with just going to black before you realize the reveal at the end of that, you'd be like, what the fuck? I have to know the ending to that. Whereas with Synchronic, I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I would have assumed he would have done that. But there's no sort of, as soon as it ends, I stopped thinking about yeah. these characters because they're not left with anything else. Yeah. There's no opportunity for them to decide whether they're going to regress or whether they're going to try to grow um, in terms of like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, it's just one of those endings where I was just like, I didn't really care just because, again, their relationship and their, I mean, Anthony Mackie's sort of like love for his supposed best friend. It just kind of feels like it sprints to the finish line where we haven't had any indication that they were compatible from the start. Yeah. I, and I think it's telling that 
with every other one of their movies we've talked about, it has had something that it left us with. You know, we were talking about Spring having things that we were still thinking about, you know, weeks after having watched it. Um, and all I can really think to do with Synchronic is to try to talk about what could have gone differently leading up to that moment, because I really just can't think of anything to take away from them. You know, just, it didn't leave me with any feeling. Even The Endless, um, which uh, The Endless I'm, was quite a bit better than that because it, it did have a lot that I took away from the relationship between the brothers. And there were things that you could wonder about now that the kind of dynamics of their relationship have changed, where could that have gone? But then obviously The Endless also left me with all these little kind of just nuggets of the, these tiny little time loop horror stories that some were just so existentially terrifying that that left, you know, that was a big impression on me too. And uh, Synchronic, it's just all kind of wrapped up and done uh, by the end of it. You know, I, I don't have enough to go on between the characters uh, for to be thinking about that after the movie's over. I don't really have any interesting, you know, time disaster Synchronic stories uh, that the movie could have relied on either. You know, it just kind of, it's all over uh, you know, by the end of it. And I was thinking maybe one thing that they could have done, and, and I hate to just do backseat like screenwriting after the movie's over, but if it's gonna be about saving the daughter, like maybe they could have had something that shows, like maybe the thing that caused a little bit of a division in their friendship was the daughter somehow in the past, like, or Dornan choosing to focus on his family. Maybe he left medical school. Maybe he abandoned that path to focus on his family. Uh, Mackie gave him some shit about that. Maybe they were supposed to be kind of partners in this whole thing. And then, and Mackie to some degree resents him for it. But then at the end of his life, his final decision that he makes is to go save the daughter because he realizes that, you know, that that core of family that uh, Dornan has is, is the best thing in either of their two lives. You know, like there are ways that they could have attached it, but it just, uh, yeah, just it just kind of feels like it's, it's all disconnected. I wish that they had really developed Mackie's relationship with the daughter more past, oh, he's the kind of like the cool uh, uncle that gives her beer at the family barbecue. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted there to be more than that. I wanted there to be a convert, like, if they had contrasted the basketball scene with um, her father, which doesn't have a lot of substance to it because he's not really involved in her life versus a conversation that Mackie had, Mackie's sacrifice then has oh, yeah. more weight to it if Mackie has a better relationship, but he's giving up the relationship yeah. by sacrificing himself so that way she can have another, or rather the father can have a chance to really rise to the occasion of being a more involved father that knows his daughter before it's too late. Yeah. Like that would have been an element that I think would have hit a lot differently. But then it's kind of like, oh, well, I have to save her because it's supposedly my best friend's daughter. Um, well, in terms of like, maybe supposedly they're supposed to be best friends. Um, but I think what you mentioned about the endless that's really interesting that is not indicative in the way that uh, Synchronic plays out is lots of little horrifying stories that are basically stacked mm -hmm. on like a house of cards. Whereas Synchronic, it's one story that kind of like briefly brushes against the surface of other stories, but then never explores those stories in any real depth or the stories themselves, yeah. they kind of are there and then they just end. I mean, you have to think about all the- The scariest thing that happens is a guy falling down an elevator yes. shaft. <laughs> That's the scariest part yeah. of the movie. I mean, That's about all I, I really would have liked for them to, because the film has that, uh, that style where they're investigating all these crime scenes, right? Of the synchronic related deaths mm -hmm. But then like the one at the Ferris wheel where the cops are joking, oh, spontaneous combustion. It's like, well, 
did we really need that scene there? Did we learn anything from that scene when if you yeah. had taken that and expanded and had each of these crime scenes have a inkling or a breadcrumb rather of sort of just like hints about what is happening more so than just like people are dying and Synchronic is uh, responsible. Maybe each one of those crime scenes kind of has a lesson behind it or it teaches you a fundamental principle of it. Yeah. But it felt like we were just visiting all these crime scenes for not enough time to learn much other than Anthony Mackie finally decides I'm going to try Synchronic even though he's seen what what the drug does and it's not good. So all of a sudden he's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. well, I guess I don't need a ninth example of how bad it is. But I just think about like scenes that could have been fleshed out more than could have been cut altogether, like the voodoo man scene. Other than having the two partners yeah, fight, I was like, well, you could have just skipped this entire thing. This could have been a verbal altercation. Did we really need another crime scene that doesn't have anything to do with Synchronic? That was the one where the guy's just drunk and mm -hmm. falls, I guess. But it was like, again, there's so many little avenues that this could have gone down in terms of building up these smaller stories that are very self-contained. But it just feels like we're getting all these examples that end before they actually get going almost. But I think that this is definitely a film that, and I guess we've been, this has been the film that we have been the most negative of. Um, I think I would, I would still probably recommend this to people that enjoy their films just because it is these two wildly creative guys sort of making this designer drug nightmare type uh, allegory almost, um, <laughs> which I don't think it's obviously their best film. It's probably my least favorite of theirs, but I think still when you compare synchronic to a lot of other films in terms of not only just like the story but the kind of quality of it i think it still is above maybe sort of like other indie horror films or indie sci-fi horror because the oh, ways yeah. even though again i think a lot of our criticisms are relative in terms of their abilities as filmmakers them as filmmakers justin benson aaron moorhead i think are still leaps and bounds above other creative duos maybe with operating within the same space. So their worst film or big air quotes on worst film is still a pretty average sci-fi horror film, which is better than, I mean, think about the kind of like sure. the throngs of sci-fi horror that we get on video on demand every other week. But um, there's a level of polish to this film that I think is engaging to a certain degree that makes it kind of elevate its sort of shortcomings. Um, but at the same time, if you're fans of their films, I definitely would not go in expecting them to kind of like have raised the bar in terms of their previous projects. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately it was just, it was impossible to, to not hope for that, you know, seeing the budget increase, seeing them, them get a little bit more uh, notice, but you're right. I mean, this is a solid, you know, six out of 10, seven out of 10 kind of movie. Like it's, it's absolutely competent. It's pretty good at a lot of what it does. You know, it, it builds, it builds tension. Uh, it's got a great sense of atmosphere, you know, throughout the whole movie. The dialogue is all, it's good. You know, it's, it's kind of punchy and clever. And the performances are generally pretty good. It's, in fact, it's, I guess the major, the performances are probably on, like, in general, good. It's just that there are a couple of performances that really sink it all uh, for us that are, um, you know, that just, that kind of distract you from the better performances. Yeah, I think it's, it's so funny just in thinking now and just in terms of, like, if I were to go into this as my first uh, Benson and Moorhead film, would I have enjoyed it more? And like, how rare do you say that about filmmakers mm -hmm. that have that are established now, right? I mean, this idea that I guess, and I don't even think that it's 
I guess it partially is, right? It's this idea that you can, you should never go into a film with a crazy amount of hype because eventually what you think of, what your hype in terms of like what it could potentially be, how often is that hit, right? When you're kind of just like, you're fiending right. for the next movie from somebody. But at the same time, their work is really indicative that it warrants a certain level of hype above other filmmakers that are kind of just like coming into their own in a way. Um, just in terms, again, like of how strong I think their previous three films are, it seems that each of those films was growing to a point where this film was going to be the one that continued that growth. Whereas I think yeah. this is more technical growth than necessarily the creative growth. Yeah. And I think that we're, I don't know how to put this really, but it's just like your expectations, while it's great that it's the technical growth, we didn't fall in love with their movies for their technical aspects, right? You've, we kind of fell in love with them sure. with the creativity behind it and their way to kind of make standardized genres and subgenres really interesting and exciting again. And so to see that element that they have displayed in their past three films, maybe not meet the mark with their fourth film, but it is great that they've got that technical proficiency down now. It's like, okay, is it going to be the next one then that really sees those two kind of level out making for something yeah. special? Yeah, it, it's great that this this film does definitely indicate growth to me. It just, um, and, and really not even until this conversation that I realized that the one part where I think it's lagging is is definitely the script writing and the dialogue. Like, I, I think you're right about that. But that's, it's like everything is kind of, uh, is getting more technically proficient from them, but they're still kind of writing the movie almost for a, uh, almost for like an, an indie audience. But then maybe maybe kind of simplifying the story a bit too, like like taking out some of the ambiguity. So so I guess with the script with the screenplay, it's almost like the worst of both worlds. Uh, but but again, this movie actually does make me hopeful for the future of what they can come up with. Like I don't see that creative spark gone from them. It's just this movie didn't quite turn into anything that I was I was kind of hoping that it uh, would turn into. But it's definitely a very well made movie, and it's you know it's nice to look at. I mean. They're, uh, they're definitely improving in their craft. Absolutely, yeah. And it definitely makes me, again, like even more excited for the future because we're seeing their technical skills are now caught up to where their creativity is. And now to see them kind of have this mm -hmm. base of, okay, we've our creative uh, sort of process was already at an elevated level, but our technical prowess was playing catch up. Now that the technical prowess mm -hmm. has caught up, what is that going to look like for the future? And I really am excited to see what they're able to do with Moon Knight, right? Because they're going to have the yeah. budget, they're going to have the star power behind it again, and they're gonna be familiar with having that level of resources, right? It's not, I'm sure, again, this is speculative, but it, like, there has to be a shock when you go from working with a majority of actors who are talented, but most people don't know who they are, right? They're kind of in that indie realm, but, now that you've the stick, the uh, quote unquote sticker shock of having big name actors, having a bit much bigger budget, like now that that shock and awe is gone and they sort of know what to expect with that, I'm super excited to see what they're able to do, especially with like Marvel backing their funding. Now they're going to have unlimited resources mm -hmm. to really match their creativity. And it's not going to be sort of like this shock and awe that they have to kind of shake off during the production of the, whatever they're making. I think, of course, Again, the even larger scope and the larger world and resources and more people involved will have challenges, but I mean, their creativity, I feel like they're going to be able to have a lot of freedom to get weird with it. And we're seeing 
these big studios are willing to get weird in a way that perhaps they weren't a few handful of years ago. So I'm really hopeful for that. Yeah, and, and I actually got a little bit of a uh, feeling when, like I went and watched the trailer for Synchronic after uh, seeing the movie. And it makes me think that some of the look of the film, and, and definitely I think this is the whole reason for that voodoo guy scene, is because they wanted a couple of really compelling images to try to get you sold on the movie. Because before they kind of had that advantage of being like, you know, The Endless is like the best sci-fi horror movie you can get for free on Netflix. Or it's like the best sci-fi horror movie you can find made for under $5 million or, or whatever it costs. And now all of a sudden they have to compete with everything else. They have to say, here is what was intended to be a theatrical release. Like, how do we get people interested? And with Moon Knight, they don't have to worry about that. You know, they already have a known property. They have the marketing from Disney and Marvel that they can just kind of get behind making the most interesting show that they can make. So, yeah, I think that's actually going to work to their favor. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what they do with that. Absolutely. And I mean, not to look too, too far in the future, but seeing how them getting to play with this uh, wide open sandbox in terms of Marvel and then seeing how they're able to take that experience and apply that to a creative venture after that. I mean, yeah, these are... Yeah. Even if this film didn't necessarily live up to uh, my expectations in a lot of ways, if anything, it's made me more excited to see what they do next. And whether it be that big mm -hmm. studio thing or whether it be them maybe returning to a smaller scale, more personal storytelling. I mean, these two remain two of the most exciting filmmakers out there right now. And uh, I'm glad that we've been able to chat okay. about their filmography as a whole for now. We'll see. Uh, maybe we'll... Maybe when uh, Moon Knight is out, we'll uh, we'll be able to get together and talk about that again, or in between that, something else in the future. But as always, Matt, I loved having you on and chatting uh, horror with you. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service, and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.